you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. It's Voss here from the ChrisVossShow.com. The Chris Voss Show. Com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. Oh, my God. We always have the greatest podcast. Uh, last time I checked, uh, we're, uh, if you just Google us under great podcasts, I think we're there. I'm not sure. That could be fake news. I don't know. Maybe I'm just making it up. But we appreciate you guys tuning in. If you want to see the video version of this interview, go to youtube.com for just Chris Voss. Hit the bell notification button so you get all the notifications of everything we're doing. We have a most brilliant author who's written an astounding amount of books and is a professional in the industry of a lot of different things. So uh, we'll get to him. Uh, but before that, go to thecvpn.com. You can see online podcasts and subscribe there. Uh, follow me, friend me at goodreads.com forward slash Chris Voss. That's goodreads.com forward slash Chris Voss. The Chris Voss Show has got a book club we're building out on there, giving away books, talking about authors, our reviews, all that sort of good stuff you can see there as well. Our newest syndication is Amazon Music, so you can go there in the podcast section. The new They just barely set that baby up, and you can follow us there. Today, we have the author, Harold Holzer, on. He is the author of The Presidents Versus the Press, The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media from the Founding Fathers to Fake News. He is the winner of the 2015 Gilder Lerman Lincoln Prize. He's one of the country's leading authorities on Abraham Lincoln and the political culture of the Civil War era. He's a prolific writer and a lecturer and frequent guest on television. Holzer served for six years as the chairman of the Lincoln Bicentennial Foundation. For the previous 10 years, he chaired the U.S. Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Commission, appointed by President Clinton. Uh, President Bush awarded him the National Humanities Medal in 2008 and in 2013. Wow, twice. Uh, he also won an essay on Lincoln for the official program at the re-inauguration of President Obama. He is now co-chairman of the Lincoln Forum. Welcome to the show. How are you, Harold? I'm exhausted from the introduction you were forced to give, but I'm fine. Thank you, Chris. No, well, it's your bio, so you know it. it I, I, you probably should be exhausted for a lot of the work that you put into it. So there you I go. I thought you were going to do highlights, uh, but that's okay. Well, I was going to read the longer one too. The longer one is even more amazing, so people can look that up. Give us your plug so people can look you up on the interweb and find out more about you. So haroldholzer.com. It's pretty easy. Um, has everything. Um, what I think I have to add, uh, based on this very day that we speak is my three-hour experience in the map room of the White House, where we know President Trump, Chris Christie, and Rudy Giuliani were exchanging uh, spray, rehearsing for the first presidential debate. Uh-oh. Uh, um, I've been in that room. It's a small room. So we will, as President Trump would say, we will see what happens um, <laughs> as COVID takes its toll on so many people. It's quite coming out today. Uh, the Mike Lee just announced he, he was at the SCOTUS thing. He just announced he was at the thing. So uh, we can get your book, and you can see all the books, uh, including Harold's, at Amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Chris Foss. We've got all the books that are there. You can get his book on Amazon or at your local dealers. So let's talk about this book, Harold. What motivated you to want to write this book? Good question. So I had written a book called uh, Lincoln and the Power of the Press, six years ago. And as you said, it won the uh, Lincoln Prize, which is uh, like the Academy Awards for people who write about Abraham Lincoln. But as I thought more about it and Lincoln's, you know, uh, embrace of journalists who liked him and his fighting with journalists who didn't like him, I, th I thought a lot about what his predecessors had done. And then I went to work um, the year I won the prize for Hunter College as the director of the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute at Hunter. And Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute is located in Roosevelt House, which is actually Franklin Roosevelt's New York City home. 
He lived there from 1908 until he left for his inauguration in 1933. And in that house, he not only learned to move around again after recovering from polio, he gave a talk in front of his fireplace to claim victory in the 1932 election. It was, in fact, in a way, his first fireside chat. The way he got around the press for the next 12 years was through fireside chats. So now I'm thinking not only back before Lincoln, but I'm thinking to um, Roosevelt and his successors, and of course, living through the Trump era and his seemingly unprecedented relationship of hostility with the press, I wanted to look into whether that hostility is new or not. And that's what motivated the book. And guess what? The answer is, it's not new. <laughs> that was one of the amazing things about the book. We kind of have this romantic thing, I think, in our age of, of uh, where we just don't read enough and, and learn enough about what has transpired in the past. We have this romantic idea of, like, the freedom of the press has always been this constitutional ideal and, and whatever. But uh, as you talk about in the book, going back to even presidents like Washington, there was a, there was a bit of a incestuous relationship with the press, and it, and it wasn't always this vaunted, vaulted thing. Uh, give us some, uh, some of your thoughts on that. Well, um, incestuous and hostile at the same time depends on the point of view and the biases of the reporter. What I think one of the myths I tried to deal with is, you know, we all lament or we say we lament the bipartisan or nonpartisan press, the press that used, you know, the Walter Cronkite, if your podcast fans are old enough to remember, you know, an avuncular guy who came on at 630 and told us the news and never ventured an opinion. The one time he did, he said the Vietnam War was wrong. It was like the whole country exploded and the president was, just didn't run and all of this because Walter Cronkite spoke. Those days are long gone. But more importantly, they didn't exist before. The, the idea of an impartial press was really a 20th century thing. In the late 18th century and all of the 19th century, the press was openly and proudly, you know, not pretending like MSNBC and Fox do today. Oh, we're just giving you the news. In the 19th century, they said, no, we're a Democratic paper or we're a Whig or later we're a Republican paper. We report everything through the eyes of the party. We're going to help the party. We're going to help the nominee. And then when he wins, dot, 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 we're going to get great federal jobs and printing contracts. That's the way the structure was created. Just you asked me to start with Washington. So, yeah, Washington had an official national newspaper in the national capital, Philadelphia, in the first three years of his presidency. But then his own Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, who was of a, di a different party, in those days they had multipartisan, well, the first cabinet was multipartisan. Jefferson said, this isn't good. We should have a pro-Republican Democratic paper too. So he got a guy to come from New York and start a Democratic, I'll just say Democratic, so I don't have to keep saying both, uh, a Democratic newspaper. And he gave him a job in the State Department to help him afford it. I mean, you wouldn't <laughs> think that was possible. And then this newspaper began not only to criticize Washington's policies, but to rip him personally, uh, to say he was pompous, he favored England. I mean, not just issues, but he, sell, he liked celebrating his own birthday. You know, maybe he was the first, but we all later learned celebrate his own birthday. He stole money from the U.S. Treasury. He padded his expense accounts. Um, Washington was scandalized. He was horrified. There was one scene that Jefferson recorded in his diary where Washington threw a newspaper down on the floor and jumped up and down on it. I mean, you know, it, it didn't, all of this belligerence didn't start with President Trump is what I said. And when Washington decided to leave, and do a farewell address, which is really not an address, by the way. It's a thing he wrote for the newspapers. So he was our first presidential op-ed columnist. Um, he, the rosy view is he left because, oh, he wanted to go back to Mount Vernon to be a gentleman farmer, and he didn't want any other president to last for more than two terms. He didn't want a monarchy. But if you read the first draft of that address, before it was edited by Alexander Hamilton, he made it clear it was leaving because of the malignant, malevolent press. They were ruining the country. They were enemies of the Union. Familiar? So who was the first president to behave 
like Donald Trump toward the press, it was the first president. That's just astounding. That's what blew yeah. me away with your book. I was like, I was like, wait, we have this romantic idea. And you're like, yeah, he left after two terms because he was so great. And some of the stories in the book of, of presidents who are, you know, doing deals and there's like, uh, oh, yeah, you can work for the administration. And it, it was kind of like Fox News today when you see Fox News anchors going into the White House. Yeah, yeah. I think one yeah. of the producers went in there. By the way, so let me make another uh, parallel. We, we have a lot of journalists complained that Sean Hannity got a special seat at the Republican convention events on the White House lawn. Well, Andrew Jackson gave journalists a special seat. The journalists that he liked, the editors who favored him, got to come to the White House and work on his staff while they were editing newspapers. <laughs> so they edited the pro-Jackson paper. They got government printing contracts. One of them became the postmaster general, by the way. And guess what he talked about? Banning opposition papers from the mail. And others served as they wrote his Jackson's veto messages. They wrote his speeches. So... This is the kind, now you're back into what you call the incestuous relationships. That was also goes back to the founding. Let me give you another story, if I can, about um, this issue of payback. So, and we didn't even do John Adams yet, who might have been, who might have, get, who gets the all-time award for cracking down on the press, by the way, without a war to excuse it. But Jefferson, um, he had an editor um, named James Callender who was just attacked Adams in Washington bitterly and always wrote good things about Jefferson, but he never had money and he drank, which is, you know, that's how he wasted his money. And he had a family who was pretty destitute. So after Jefferson won the presidency, Callender said, I would like a federal job. I'd like to be postmaster of Richmond. Now, that wasn't a heavy lift for Jefferson. The previous 12 years, Federalists had had all the federal jobs. Why not give it to a Democrat, a loyal Democrat like James Callender? Jefferson didn't like him because he was a drunk and he was unpredictable. And Jefferson later said he didn't like the way he asked for the job. So Jefferson said no. So what did Callender do? Number one, he immediately started a Federalist newspaper and began attacking Jefferson. Worse than that, he wrote an infamous pamphlet telling the world for the very first time that Thomas Jefferson had a uh, sexual relationship with his enslaved woman, Sally Hemings, and that mm -hmm. there were children in Monticello who bore a striking resemblance to Thomas Jefferson. So he was outed by this guy. And he could have perhaps, maybe to the detriment of history, but could have kept the secret if he had only done what Washington and Adams did, which is to give federal jobs to your buddies in the press. <laughs> Now, you, in your book, you didn't write about all 50 presidents or no. 50, however many it is nowadays. 44 men. 44 men. Is, yeah. Maybe I'm thinking 50 states. I'm getting old. 50 um, states, right. Yeah. So uh, did you just focus on some of the main ones or the well, ones yeah, that you know, I, had the best stories? I regret it, I guess. I mean, it would have taken me another two years. It would have been this I'm thick. Not, you know. Yeah. I mean, a pal of mine just came out with a thousand page book about Abraham Lincoln. So, uh, and is doing very well. So they, but I'm not sure people really want to know about the press and Millard Fillmore or the press and Warren Harding or the press and William Henry Harrison, who was president for 30 days. Uh, there is, there are stories to tell. So what I did is when I wrote about, uh, Jackson, I also wrote a little bit about John Quincy Adams, who was interesting. When I wrote about, um, Roosevelt, I wrote a bit about Herbert Hoover. When I wrote about Theodore Roosevelt, I wrote about William McKinley and the yellow journalists. <clears throat> I snuck them in. When I wrote about um, uh, Ken uh, Kennedy, I talked a little bit about Eisenhower and I couldn't help talking about one of the great stories. I didn't want to do a whole chapter on Harry Truman, but there's a great story about Harry Truman. He was... Um, very protective father, like most presidents who have children. And one day in Washington, his daughter, Margaret, who later became a, uh, a mystery writer um, and the wife of a famous New York Times editor, she gave a concert as a professional singer in Washington. And Truman and his wife went to see it. 
and Margaret was not a great singer, but she really, you know, give her A for effort. But a music critic for a Washington paper wrote a pretty brutal review. And Harry Truman, very unpresidentially, sat down and wrote a handwritten letter. Dear whatever the guy's name was, if I ever meet you in person, you're going to need a piece of raw meat for your eye and a supporter for below. Um, and he, ba he mailed it. And the critic said, I don't blame him for coming to the defense of his child, but it leaked out and it was published. Guess what? It did Truman a lot of good, actually. Really? People, but here's the thing that I discovered that I don't think many people know. The day that all this happened and Truman was in such a high dudgeon about this, his press secretary, who he loved uh, and who was very widely respected, was also known for practical jokes. He put his head down on his desk in the White House and pretended to be asleep, or so the reporters thought. They said, come on, come on, Charlie, wake up. Guess what? He was dead. Dead oh at his God. desk. And Truman was beside himself. And he, he and his wife decided not to tell Margaret. So they're sitting on this story. So she has a concert gig that's not a disaster. So she doesn't get nervous. Didn't do her much good. But so with all of this, I just thought the idea of losing a press secretary um, on that same day helped explain why he kind of lost a little bit of his cool. Is, uh, so I, being a anyway, I told that story. And then what I did is I started with Kennedy and I talked about every president since Kennedy because I thought a lot of my readers will have lived the experiences of all the presidents in the last 50, 60 years. I thought it was amazing because you, you talked a lot about the early presidents and then you move forward. Uh, but like a lot of these early guys that we romanticize, you know, I don't know if you want to tell the story of John Adams, but we romanticize these guys and we're like, yeah, they were these, uh, you know, they vaulted the press and, and uh, you know, supported the Constitution. And turns out, man, these stories are wild. Well, Adams, by the way, there was a constitutional guarantee that Congress shall, ne shall not pass any laws that violate freedom of the press or speech. So what happened? Congress passed a law that, that made it a crime, a federal crime, to ridicule the president of the United States. Adams personally ordered the attorney general to prosecute at least 17 anti-federalist journalists, pro-Jefferson wow. journalists, including Mr. Callender, who I talked about before. He went to prison, which is another reason why Jefferson should have been nicer to him not only because he posed a threat because he was a little unstable, 17 editors prosecuted, fined, put in jail. In at least two cases, the editors died, so they went after the widows. And, and keep in mind, you know, we talk a lot today about the Supreme Court. Will it be five to four, six to three? Uh, you know, will there be a vacancy? In the time when Adams is doing this, all of the federal courts are members of his party because only Washington and Adams have appointed judges, Supreme oh, wow. Court, federal courts. So Adams' legacy is one of real suppression against the press. The uh, sedition law was a horror, and there was really no excuse for it. How long was the sedition law in, in place, and, and what overturned it? The, it was originally ordered to go just for the duration of Adams' term. And then <laughs> so when he... Jefferson becomes president, he has no protection. <laughs> But he, you know, Jefferson is an interesting case because he's, in many ways, he speaks in idealistic terms and he governs or lives his life in non-idealistic terms. I mean, he's, he, he's the guy who writes all men are created equal and has slaves, right? So he's, you could say, hypocritical or a man of his times. He doesn't see the dichotomy. He says, I hate the sedition law. Even if it didn't sunset with me, I would never enforce it. It's an outrage. But guess what? It's just that he hated federalism. He didn't think the federal government should do that. But he encouraged states to crack down and use libel laws to persecute federalist newspapers. So it kept going just in a state-by-state -state way and not in, out, of, out of the new capital of Washington. And this just blew my mind in the book. I was like, wow, I didn't know any of this was going on. Like I, like I say, you just have this romanticism thing. Is the next big president you wrote about uh, Abraham Jackson, Lincoln then? Jackson was first. Jackson. So we covered him sort of. And then okay. I had to contain myself with Lincoln because I wrote a 
you know, a 550 page book just about Lincoln and the press. But the outline of the story is he loved the journalists who were in his political party. He hung out with them. He wrote anonymous editorials for them. He, uh, he had them typeset his speeches. He got them printing contracts. When he became president, he appointed them to really good federal jobs. Um, but when it came to Democratic newspapers, he was extremely hostile during his, um, during, uh, his days in Illinois. And when he becomes president and Democratic newspapers um, begin encouraging border states to secede, he orders the, well, tolerates. He never, he doesn't keep his fingerprints on it, really. But the army shuts down newspapers in Missouri and Maryland and Delaware and Kentucky. These editors, well, the papers are shut down. The editors are usually thrown into military prisons without trial. Wow. Uh, I'll give you a great example. In Baltimore, the editor of a, a pro-South newspaper named um, Francis Key Howard um, writes an editorial saying the Union Army was brutal to the noble Southern women of Manassas during the Battle of Bull Run. He's immediately arrested. He's thrown into Fort McHenry, the, um, the fort in Baltimore Harbor. Remember, the Union is trying desperately to keep Maryland out of the Confederacy. Why is that a particularly ironic story? Francis Key Howard is the grandson of Francis Scott Key, the man who was inspired by the bombs bursting in air at Fort McHenry in the War of 1812, so inspired that he wrote the national anthem. And here's his grandson in Fort McHenry looking out, locked up. That is That's the Lincoln administration. So the, the postmaster general, the secretary of state, the secretary of the interior and the army closed down more than 200 newspapers during the Civil War, including newspapers in New York and Philadelphia and Chicago, just for expressing um, sentiments like don't enlist, evade the draft, things like that. Those became treasonous in Lincoln's eyes. Now, he didn't sign a bill because there was no bill. He did it all by executive order. And, um, you know, was it excessive? Yeah. Was it necessary? Probably not. But I give Lincoln a little bit of the benefit of the doubt because the Constitution does say that the writ of habeas corpus can be suspended in the time of a rebellion. Yeah. And he doesn't have the benefit that we have of knowing how the Civil War was going to come out and how slavery was going to come out. So it's kind of easy for us to say he overdid it, but you know, he was facing the destruction of the entire Constitution and the country. When did, I, I believe journalism really became uh, a profession together, like the, the, the press, the press corps and the press club and things like that. When did they really formalize? It, it, it seems to me, I have something banging around the back of my head that there was a time when they really formalized the art of journalism. Yeah. Well, you're right because at the beginning, it wasn't so much the journalists who were famous, but the editors, um, people like Horace Greeley of the New York Tribune and James Gordon Bennett of the Herald and Henry Raymond of the Times, they, you know, everything was written according to their party principles. So um, in the time of Hearst and Pulitzer, uh, the, the Spanish-American War began to shift a little bit to reporters, then perfect moment because they had the perfect president to write about, Theodore Roosevelt era. That's when line reporters became the stars and that's when TR gave them their own room in the White House, um, the first White House press corps, the first White House press room, um, and actually the first daily meetings with the press. Uh, and, you know, TR was described by one of these reporters as a guy who expected to be on the front page of every newspaper every day. And, you know, a lot of the times he, he, was, he was, but he worked at it. One, one reporter said he was the master press agent of all time. So every afternoon when he got his daily shave from his official barber in a little room outside the new Oval Office, they would invite the journalists in. And they, since TR was a multitasker, he couldn't just get shaved because it would be too boring. So while he had the lather on and a smock, 
the reporters would ask him questions. He'd hold like an informal press conference. It was off <laughs> the record in those days. And then the journalists thought it would be fun since he gestured so much and went crazy when they asked him a question he didn't like. Let's ask him the most provocative questions when the razor, the straight edge razor was around his neck. <laughs> Let's see if we can draw blood. And he never failed him. He jumped up, but the barber was terrific. He knew exactly when to retract the blood. Wow. So it Roosevelt, sounds like quite the quite perfect, the uh, yeah perfect ballet. guy at the perfect time yeah it was a ballet <laughs> he wouldn't have the, liked that comparison but that's the ballet of the knife yeah the uh, maybe we can get that going on these days or something I don't know uh, so Theodore Roosevelt kind of really brought that into fruition yes. uh, is there any other great stories you want to tell about Teddy well um, at the same time he was feeding the national hunger for front page stories he was inventing things that have kind of entered the vocabulary, like trial balloons, um, leaks. Those, he, he not only introduced those things, he invented the terms for them himself. Uh, caricatures of Roosevelt were as, you know, made him as familiar as Lincoln had been because he had the face for caricature. He, did the, he encouraged the first newsreel, so he was getting with the program when it came to technology. The same time he was doing all this, he encouraged long-form serious investigative journalists to do pieces about the oil industry, the meatpacking industry. And he used those investigative stories to ballast his reform agenda in Congress. But one thing about Teddy is when he was done with you, he was done with you. So at one point he got tired of Lincoln Steffens and Ida Tarbell and those people. And he went to the, gridiron club the big press club of the day and he said they were muckrakers and he didn't mean it as a compliment today we call it a badge of honor if they're investigative reporters they're muckrakers but what teddy meant is that they were in the mud and they were negative and he didn't want any more of it by the way tr was offered a job after his presidency actually after he lost his comeback in 1912 to be the editor of a daily paper and wow. he kind of was sorry that he didn't do it he would have been a force of nature, but instead he, he still ended his career as a journalist, just as a magazine writer. There you go. And then FDR had a really interesting relationship, especially hiding his polio and stuff. That yeah. was quite extraordinary how he pulled that off. So he's the, well, let, can I go back to one second to sure, Woodrow yeah. Wilson? Yeah. Cause Wilson was the antithesis of TR. Well, the journalist said, well, going from Roosevelt to Wilson, it was like going from a foundry to a convent. And, <laughs> Wilson lectured them, but he did create the first press, first formal press conferences, except they had to be written questions, and oh. again, off the record. And he had a bad temper, actually, Wilson. But Wilson was the first president to disguise things from the press in a, in a, in a way that the press found shocking. And it's, I'll give you a, so here's a story I left out of my book. And, do, and I, you know, I put a lot of stories in the book, anecdotes because I love stories, but I couldn't do every one of them because it would have been 900 pages. So here's one I left out. Um, he went to the Paris Peace Conference in 1918 to negotiate the, uh, the peace after World War I. And he took a big press contingent with him. But when he got there, he took sick and he blocked the press from the details. According to rumor, he got... Um, a very high fever, delirium, and really almost almost bought it in Paris. Wow. Guess what? He got the Spanish flu of 1918. And I thought, who wants to read about a pandemic? It's like boring. It's never going to happen again. And now, as we speak, it's been revealed this very day that the 45th president of the United States has come down with COVID-19. So, but of course, it's very public. I'm not sure they could have hidden it. So then, and then of course, Wilson trying to sell his peace plan suffered a stroke and they hid that from the journalists. They wouldn't let, the journalists couldn't see him whenever he appeared, even sitting on the porch of the White House, his, the face that had been affected, the side of his face that had been slackened by a stroke was always in shadow or he wore a hat to cover his face. So that was the first big secrecy. Wow. Um, and, and then, Sorry to not answer your first question, but FDR, no, yeah. The FDR thing was amazing because it wasn't that he hid 
his disability so much as the press at first decided among themselves, we're not going to make his life harder. So let's not, no photographs of Roosevelt um, within his wheelchair or walking with his braces. I have a great picture in my office, which I'd love to go back to someday. It's been six months um, of FDR stepping down on the steps of Roosevelt house, um, holding on to the special banister that they made for him. So he could swing his legs. The da- New York daily news took the picture, but they never ran it because it showed the braces underneath his shoes. They were that strict about protecting him. Now, people knew he had polio because the Daily News raised $50,000 to build the White House pool um, so that he could exercise in it. But he was never shown in his wheelchair. He was never shown getting in and out of cars. You know, he had to be lifted in and out of cars. And he would joke with them, no pictures of me and the machine boys. But there were, I think... Hyde Park, the Roosevelt Library, has four or five photographs of Roosevelt in a wheelchair out of 100,000 surviving pictures. So at first it was self-enforced, and then later the government during World War II enforced it. So he was extraordinarily protected. It was interesting they took that atti- that attitude right away. Was there a reason they did that? I looked, I looked every, you know, they should have been tougher, I guess, but then we wouldn't have had FDR. And I don't know if we would have survived World War II, but three we, terms. Yeah, four. He was elected four oh, times. Four. He only lived a month for the fourth term. But I looked for a smoking gun, and all I could find was photographers of the day saying years later, you know, he was such a nice guy. I, when I said that, I was paraphrasing, but that's, you know, he had a tough job. We didn't want to make it tougher. He, and Roosevelt had 998 press conferences, by the way. If a photographer tried to take a picture of him in the wheelchair, there was always another photographer to jostle the camera. Wow. That's how much they protected him. <laughs> and he, if you read the transcripts, if you read the transcripts, he could be as belligerent as Trump is in press conferences. I mean, he didn't say you're a nasty woman, but he would say, go stand in the corner. That's a really stupid question. And he was tough. But for some reason, they, they didn't want to make his life or his job harder and it's remarkable he also con- conspired in a to produce a magazine story that asserted in, during the campaign that he was in perfect health and and glossed over his high blood pressure so it was an active effort on roosevelt's part because he thought the only way he could lose to hoover in 1932 was if hoover made a big deal about his health and his disability but the reporters were clearly not the editors FDR never got majority endorsements from the publishers and Roosevelt hated the publishers, hated them. <laughs> but the day, the, you know, the day-to-day journalists, why? Because he, he was, he was accessible. Number one, um, he invited them to use the pool. If he wasn't using it, they could use the white house tennis core, core uh, court. Couldn't think of what it was called. Um, they traveled with him. Um, he and Eleanor invited them to dinner. They wrote cards of sympathy when their spouses or their parents died. Um, it's, it's an approach, you know, yeah. it's called being friendly. Um, we don't have that much anymore. And then at the same time, the other story I, I do with Roosevelt, the other thread in my book is not only, you know, been there, done that, these the report, the presidents have always been fighting with the presidents. The other thread in my book that the most memorable communicators the most effective communicators are the three or four presidents who also find a way to go around the press using the newest technology to reach the people directly. And FDR, with his fireside chats on the radio, also very often recorded by newsreels, reached the public directly. And if anybody else had used the radio, it might not have mattered. But Roosevelt modulated his voice he knew how to speak in a, in a conversational tone on the radio. And he was as effective. If you go back, if, I listen to old radio programs sometimes. Mm-hmm. And to listen to people like Jack Benny and Bob Hope, they toned it down from the stage appearance. And Burns and Allen, they were just talking. And Roosevelt was just talking. So people welcomed him into their parlors like a friend. And do you know how many fireside chats he did in 12 years? It's people don't. 28. 
Wow. Not many. 998 news conferences, just 28 fireside chats. I once, my, my, one of my sources for Roosevelt, she's, she's gone now, so I couldn't talk again, but I used to ask my mother about Roosevelt. She was born in 1916, and she lived more than 99 years. So I used to ask her about FDR uh, because my mother and father were mad for Roosevelt. He was their, their be all and end all. So I said, did you know that he had polio? This is like what we were discussing about knowledge of his handicap. Of course, she said. I mean, he was the head of the March of Dimes. We used to collect money for the March of Dimes in his honor. I said, well, what did you think? What, what do you think was the result? She said, well, he got better. And he learned how to walk again. That's what people thought because he would be on his crutches and he would swing his hips or he would hold on to his son and he created this illusion. Wow. And the other thing is, you know, how many times, how many fireside chats, mom? Oh, all the, you know, every week, all, it was like a radio show. It was a series. They, that's what they thought, the power of it, the memory of it. Um, and then I, I also talk about Kennedy and the, um, TV news conferences about Obama and the White House website and Donald Trump on Twitter. Donald Trump, love him or hate him, he found a medium that was perfect for him, didn't have to bother with the press. I mean, he likes to. He likes to fight with the press. But he used Twitter um, to get out there, and boy, was that a smart, perfect. Again, it's got to be the right medium for the right person. Kennedy was so handsome and such a great voice a great smile. He was perfect for television. Roosevelt's voice. He could be in a wheelchair. Nobody saw it. Perfect for radio. Donald Trump, who loves an insult line and capital letters, made for Twitter. The way TR was made for the first White House press corps. It's, it's amazing how often in the United States, the man and the hour meet when it comes to media relations. And technology. I mean, I mean, and given the low bar of, of his education, his writing skills, let's put it that way, or his spelling skills, his grammar, uh, it, are we it's talking about, for Twitter. Are we talking uh, about Trump? Trump or Rose? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, Trump says he has an Ivy League education. Um, remember, he went to University of Pennsylvania. <laughs> um, although his sister says he had someone else take the SATs. I don't know. I want, I, there's a... A 95-year-old plus economics professor at the Wharton School of University of Pennsylvania, who, whom I've come to know, and I asked her a couple of years ago, I've often wondered, are you at liberty to say what Donald Trump was like as a student at the Wharton School? And she said, sure, you can ask, but I have nothing to say. I said, what do you mean? She said, I have no recollection of ever seeing him, and neither do any of my colleagues. We don't even know who we didn't even know who he was when he became famous. So I, like uh, high school. I don't I, know. I, I sloughed most of high school. So there, there was that. Um, I so guess as nice as, work if you can get it, right? Yeah. So let's talk about Trump, I guess, since we're at, at Trump now, maybe we can fall back to uh, uh, JFK and, and Nixon if sure. you want. Uh, but, but Trump has really kind of reinvented what we kind of, you know, we went through the standard, like you say, we established the, the press room and, and the press briefings. And then we went through this whole upending of the press briefings, the press room. And, you know, we started this thing with chopper talk and it was, a, it, if you really look at it, it would, regardless of what you think of Donald Trump, <clears throat> it was a brilliant way to really manipulate the press and be able to, to control the narrative. Like, I don't think any, maybe going back to Teddy Roosevelt, any, any uh, president's been able to do because he runs the briefing. You're, it's, it's, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's a, I hadn't even thought of that. But no president since TR has set the agenda that way. TR would have his briefings. He would say it's off the record. He would say something the press would laugh at or say, wow. And then they'd say, can we put it on the record? And he'd say, oh, okay. Um, well, you can do this, but you can't do that. And if you didn't, by the way, with TR, if you put something out that he didn't authorize, you went into a purgatory called the, um, uh, he, put, he had a special name for it, the Ananias Club, named after a biblical figure who had been struck dead for lying to St. Peter. So that was his like club. If you were in the Ananias Club, he couldn't come into the press conferences. He wouldn't even let you have press releases. So 
Trump had Jim Acosta banned from the uh, press room um, for asking too many questions. So yeah, there's a, there's a comparison. But, you know, I started with this thread. I was complimenting you for asking a question that I should have thought of. So let me go back to it. You're right, but Trump controls the narrative in a different way. Maybe before COVID-19. He would do a tweet at six in the morning. I shudder to think what room he was in when he conceived the tweet, but we won't, we won't get into that. Wherever he was, wherever he was, wherever he was sitting, he gets the tweet out. And for the next five or six hours, cable news reacts to his tweet. Whatever the story is, he's setting the news agenda. In the old days, it was the early edition of the New York Times that came out the night before. I remember when I was a political press secretary, I used to get in my car in Manhattan in the days when it wasn't that safe to get into your parking lot um, at 10 o'clock at night. I would drive about five blocks to the corner of Broadway and 96th Street and wait for a truck driver to bring a big bundle of the New York Times and throw it on the street. The vendor would open it up with scissors. These are things you don't see anymore, right? This is like real old school. I would buy that 10 o'clock edition. It was called the city edition. I would read it and I would call my boss, one of whom was Governor Mario Cuomo before he was governor. And he would make me read whatever the story was about him wow. aloud you, from a payphone. No such thing as payphones anymore. <laughs> Putting in dimes. And then he would say, that, that's not true. That's not true. That has to be corrected because most people read the next edition. So I would hang up, call the newsroom of the New York Times and say, you've got to correct line 27. He didn't, says he didn't say that. And by the next morning, half of the time it was corrected. That's the old way. Lyndon Johnson used to get the New York Times late edition and the Washington Post, I'm sorry, the early edition delivered to the White House at 10 o'clock. And then he would read it and complain so that the next mornings would be corrected. So boy, those days are long gone, but that's how it used to be done. And he circumvented that, Trump did. The same but way Because that, he became the morning edition, right? He, that's a, that's a, why didn't you get, why didn't I know you before I wrote the book? Call me anytime. I could have uh, <laughs> used that line in my book, man. He is the morning edition. I mean, it's different now. Now we're in a presidential campaign. Now he's sick. I don't know what it all means as we speak, uh, but it's not good. But anyway, presidential campaigns are different. Everybody can yell and that's, that's part of our tradition as well. But I, yes, his mastery of that uh, Twitter. But you know what? The press doesn't have to do it. The press doesn't have to be so lazy. They can create their own, whatever happened to investigative journalism, whatever happened to pushback. Um, instead, we're back to the partisan journalism of the Jackson and Lincoln eras. We have the liberal media attacking and we have the conservative media praising. And both of them are over the top as far as I'm concerned. And I love some of the reporters. Um, I have friends who are Fox reporters. I have a lot of friends who are CNN uh, reporters um, and MSNBC commentators. But none of them says, I would like the day to come when someone goes on MSNBC and says, we are the semi-official Democratic Party media center. If you're a Democrat, listen to us. And I would like Fox News not to say just the news or whatever they say. We are the official conservative movement uh, Republican channel because it's they are what that they are exactly that now they just don't want to say it so we're back so I, I don't blame them and i don't think it's terrible because we're simply back to what presidential coverage has been through most of american history mm -hmm. i miss the walter conkreitz the sam donaldson sam donaldson i think got into it a couple times with ronald reagan didn't he or was it nixon well sam donaldson was with that well, yeah with both sam donaldson it, Ronald Reagan was, uh, didn't like Sam Donaldson. But Sam Donaldson just didn't like, he liked to, to ask obnoxious questions for the sake of obnoxious questions. He didn't care whether you were a Democrat or a Republican. He wanted to be the thorn in the side, you know, the skunk at the party. But he was effective. Reagan didn't find that amusing, though, for sure. Um, Nixon, by the end of his, uh, you know, first term and the beginning of his second, had really no friends in the media. You know, Mary, um, um, 
not Mary McGrory, but um, Helen Thomas of the UPI, who was the in the front row of the White House press conferences for 30 years. Um, one of the presidents called her the, um, the woman that presidents love to hate. And uh, I have a story in my book that she hailed a cab in Washington one day and got in and said, you know, take me to my apartment. And he looked at her and said, aren't you the woman that presidents love to hate? So <laughs> it was their badge of honor. I really wish she would have lived through the Trump era. I mean, she was, she was great. Well, she'd be 110, era. so that's yeah. pretty generous. You know, Helen Thomas, that's a good lesson for journalists today. People who want to be the lead of their own stories. A lot of journalists today want to be the news. They want to be, become famous for fighting with someone. They want to have what we call a Dan Rather moment. I saw Dan Rather in a restaurant when I was writing this book and told him I was going to do the moment when, he, when Nixon said to him, when he'd been introduced at a press conference and he got applause, Nixon said, are you running for something? And Dan Rather said, no, Mr. President, are you? I and he, and Rather wrote, later said that he was really sorry he did that. He didn't think it was professional. It was instinctual. He was angry at being poked fun at and he poked back and he thought, he said he regretted it, but it made, his, it made him really famous. Um, but journalists want, you know, often want to be the story today, and it's probably not a great idea. So with Helen Thomas, she never let go. I mean, she was no longer the UPI reporter. She was banished to the back of the room. Then she was in the front of the room again. She didn't get to ask the first question. She didn't get to end the thing by saying, thank you, Mr. President, which was her job. And then one day when she was past 90, I think, and people had to help her up the steps of the White House. You know, the White House press room is, is a room that's built over the White House swimming pool. Nixon covered up the pool because Lyndon Johnson had swum nude in it and didn't want to think about it. Covered up the floor. So if you think of the length of a swimming pool plus a locker room, that's the whole press room and briefing mm. room that we see. It's very small. And then there's a staircase that you go up to the Oval Office there, to the executive wing. And you speak to the, to the reporters. They had to help Helen Thomas up those stairs at the end. And one day she was walking on the White House lawn on some innocuous Obama-era day called, uh, I don't know if it was Father and Bring Your Son to Work or whatever it was. And this rabbi was there with his son. And he said to Helen Thomas, can you come over and talk to us about Israel? I don't But Helen Thomas was a proud Arab American. And she went over to him and said, I think that the Jews should get out of Israel and go back where they came from. And he was taping her. And he said, where, did, where, where do you think they came from? And she said, Germany and Poland. And you, her career lasted about two hours after that. Oh, wow. She made herself the story. And I mean, aside from the fact that her opinion was idiotic, but she, you know, she was 90 years old. So whatever. Yeah. But that was the end for Helen Thomas. A, a lesson to journalists, do not make yourself the lead. You know, and you bring up a good topic. I've been seeing a lot of journalists talk uh, lately about how they just really were not prepared and trained to deal with Donald Trump. You know, they were just really overwhelmed. Uh, they, they didn't, like, do we call it as lies? Do we call it racism? Uh, I've read stories that, that a lot of editors kind of squelch, don't, don't call him a racist. Um, I know early on morning Joe got, got in a little trouble for psychoanalyzing the, th uh, the president. And, and it seemed like word came down from above that was like, don't, don't play. Morning Joe is, I mean, he's like a, <clears throat> one of Trump's tropes is that uh, Joe Scarborough murdered someone. So that's every once in a while he has to defend himself against that. I know you're absolutely right. The, uh, the Washington post has called a lie, a lie, uh, from the beginning, and they have a running, uh, they have a countdown, you know, like New York City used to have a budget deficit clock, and it kept running. So you saw like millions of dollars every day added to the national debt. Um, Washington Post has a, a lie clock, and it's like 20,500 now in three and a half years. But the New York Times, uh, which doesn't differ from the Post that much in political orientation, um, wouldn't call it a lie in the first couple of years. It was misstatement. 
And there was a lot of controversy about how far they should go. Um, and uh, yes, you're right. I would say for the first two years, the press did not know how to deal with President Trump. Yeah. And, and uh, I don't know, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how this all plays out. I know we're pressed for time, so I'll wrap up here. Um, I had a million questions. We didn't get to JFK and, and Nixon, but that should give people reason to go buy the book and read it so you can find out more about them, because I bet there's some interesting stories about that, correct? Absolutely. I mean, Nixon, you can imagine, but Kennedy complicated. Um, uh, new technology plus in the Roosevelt mode, reporters knowing about things they today they would report on in two seconds, uh, health problems, extramarital affairs, and thought, you know, the last gasp of the old boys network, it was not something you wrote about. Yeah, very interesting. So uh, give us your latest uh, plugs where people can find you on the interwebs, uh, Harold, and uh, buy the book. Okay. Um, so um, anybody wants to try to friend me on Facebook, I'd love to hear from your crew. I have no idea how to say how to reach me on Facebook, but I guess people can figure it out. But my website is haroldholzer.com, and I uh, have my uh, appearances, uh, speeches, and talks, my Zoom stuff out there. I'm still doing programming on the book very happily and uh, um, got a nice gallery of pictures. And uh, the website also has an email. If someone has a question, uh, it's haroldholzer at haroldholzer.com. I love hearing from readers. Um, all they have to do is show the sales receipt that they bought the book and I'll talk to them. No, they don't really have to, but it would help. There you go. There you go. And then how many books would you say you've written uh, on Lincoln and just maybe as a total? So all my books, including books that I co-authored with my buddies or edited, this was number 54. Nice. Nice. Yeah. That's a lot of, that's a lot of writing. Well, I'm only 40 years old. This The reason I look yeah. this way yeah. is because of the 54 books taking Those a lot books. out of me. There you go. Uh, well, thank you for being on the show, Harold. We certainly appreciate it and you sharing your insight. People can look forward to buying the book. Thank you for being on the show. Chris, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. To my audience, be sure to order the book, uh, The Presidents Versus the Press, The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media, From the Founding Fathers to Fake News. You can get it on any of your local uh, book stands. And uh, you can also get it on Amazon. Uh, one place you can go, you can see all the books of all the great authors that have been on the Chris Voss Show, amazon.com forward slash Chris Voss, or I'm sorry, amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Chris Voss. You can just see the covers. You can click on them. Buy them all. Use your credit card. I mean, what a wonderful, a great time to be sitting and reading books and entertaining sure. yourself in quarantine. <laughs> right. Uh, thanks, Monis, for being here. We'll see you guys next time.